You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Wisdom Cricket Podcast, coming to you live from a, a very springy looking, or the Oval, yeah, it's not, we've not really been able to enjoy it too much with the fine weather, I mean, I've been away for a few months, but joining me again for the first time in a while is the Editor-in-Chief of the Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker. Phil, hello. Hello, Vish. Well, you haven't been here, so we haven't been able to do a podcast. Well, this is true, yeah, it's entirely my fault. Indeed, told, yeah. So... This is me fronting up. Uh, also joined by magazine editor Joe Harmon. Joe, Hi, Vish. Welcome, welcome back. Thank you for having Been me. Starting yourself the last few months. I have. You've got a very aerodynamic haircut. Yeah, that all, all went a week or so ago. Can't be done to the weather. I still no. haven't still haven't spoken to him about it. Right. Okay. This is probably for another time then, isn't it? Well, it might be for now. I mean, if you can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say that we do have plenty to talk about today, which is why we're joined by the editor of the Wisdom Cricket Almanac, Lawrence Booth. Lawrence, thank you for gracing us. Don't be silly, Vish. Thank you for having me. Just to show you how the sausages are made, this is pre-recorded, but we'll go live on Wednesday when all the details of the Great Yellow Book will be released. The um, Wisdom Cricket Almanac out on Wednesday, number one hundred and fifty-five. As if you don't know. Well, that's it. <laughs> As ever, it's always a talking point, but the five to read them out. Shy Hope for the West Indies after his performance last year. Jamie Porter having taken Essex to Division 1, then leading them to the Championship with a shed load of wickets. But the three that stand out at the end of that, Heaven Knight, World Cup winning captain for England. Nat Siver, gun all-rounder. And Anya Shrubsall, the woman who um, brought Lords to its feet. I suppose you get this all the time, but how did you come to the decisions that you've made? Well, it could actually have been five women. It wouldn't have been, you know, there were a couple of others who sort of put their hands up um, and that, that would have been truly revolutionary. I mean, we've, we've only had two women in previous years as quickly as the year, Claire Taylor and Charlotte Edwards. So three in one go is, is quite a big moment and it just felt like an obvious choice to make. It didn't feel like tokenism or that I was forcing the issue. That this England had won a World Cup and if it had been the men, we would no one would have questioned for a second whether the captain, Moen Morgan, or what he's been chosen before, but, you know, three stars from that team have been chosen so it was an easy one a, a beautifully pleasantly easy one to make in the end 
Uh, one name that does stick out from that, or I suppose in an omission, would be someone like Tammy Beaumont, you know, player of the World Cup. How close was she to uh, making the cut? Yeah, yeah, she was. She was discussed. Um, it's sometimes it comes down to sort of a bit of gut feel, and, and for me, the gut feel was that the three that we did choose, Shrub, Soul, Siver, and Knight, were um, had slightly stronger cases. Knight because she was the captain, and you know, when an England cricketer lifts a World Cup, as Paul Collingwood knows, your, your career can be made on on that. Um, Nat Siver. She played the, the, the nutmeg, didn't she? And that was a shot that was talked about more than perhaps any stroke that certainly any man had played last summer. And that, that sort of seemed to transcend women's cricket. The Sun wrote an article about it. I mean, she became a figure beyond the sports pages. And for, for a woman's cricket in this country, that was, that was something else. And of course, Shrub Soul was the talk of the town for three or four days after the World Cup final, 6 for 49, and the final best figures by man or woman ever. So I thought those three just had the edge on, on Tammy, but you know I'm sure Tammy will be in the mix in future years. Phil, you were there at the World Cup final as mm. well. Um, fair, those three? Yeah, I think so. Um, I'll, I'll never forget Harman Preet calls 171 against Australia, which you know, smashed the door down for me, really, when it came to, uh, to really appreciating how far the girls could go and how far they'd already gone. That said... Uh, the moment of, of last year was obviously that afternoon at Lord's. Um, uh, and so I find it hard to disagree with any of those picks. Um, again, I think, I think Tammy, because of everything that she'd gone through as well over the last few years, you know, she'd been in and out the side, she doubted herself, she wasn't even sure if she was going to carry on playing the game at that kind of level. Hers was a real good, good feel-good story, I thought, from the time. But I can't really argue with any of those three. Um, I was lucky enough to interview Anya Shrubsoul a week or two after it, maybe a couple of months after it actually, and and um, she's so solid and so so easygoing and and clear-minded, and uh, and she's still slightly bemused, I think, by by the hoo-ha around it all. And, and obviously, she graces the cover of the book, and and you wrote for the magazine about why why Anya was the option, why you went with Anya. And she, she retains this kind of brilliant, kind of mature detachment from the, 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 you know, the kind of the hullabaloo around it all. And, and I like that. I like someone in sport with a bit of perspective. Yeah, so her feet were on the ground. I and mean, when I, I messaged her to let her know that she was the cover star, you know, she, she, she was clearly pleased, but she wasn't sort of, I didn't sense she was dancing around her living room. I mean, she, she regarded it as, she, she made a point of saying this is for the team as much as it is for me. Yeah. I think that's part of why they've been successful that side. But look, I, I take your point on Tammy, absolutely. I mean, it, it would be a worrying summer if there weren't sort of that six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 in the list of discussions weren't making a really strong case as well, I agree. And the, the beauty of this is it's a matter of opinion at the end of the day. On selection, I'd say there's a certain element of gut feel. Is it, is it all down to you? Do you, have a, do you speak to editorial staff or do you canvass opinion? How no, I do, yeah, I do canvass opinion because you want to make sure you're not missing someone really obvious. You, know, you don't want to go down as the wisdom editor who forgot to sort of name the World Cup winning captain in the five when England won. So yes, you, you do ask other people you I mean I, I I'm kind of thinking about it from probably July August onwards I'm looking out for people who putting their hands up early on guys haven't been chosen before women now as well increasingly and you're sort of testing it you, you're keeping a running a, a mental order in your head throughout mm. the summer and then you get to September October think right this is actually probably the, the most fun part of the job it's the bar room debate part of wisdom that people on Twitter go berserk about because Sachin Tendulkar isn't chosen every year or whatever it is you have to explain the criteria that's all part of the charm actually I mean I, I wrote a piece a couple of years back for the Mail kind of ex justifying why Wisdom do what they do and my 
My main point was that if we just choose the best five performers of the summer, we're essentially like an ICC award. And there are plenty of ICC awards kicking around. This, this has its own charm. It's a Hall of Fame. You're invited to it once. And I think the players respond to that. They like it. Mm. They can see the quirkiness of it. And you do get some modern names occasionally. But by and large, you don't miss, over the course of a career, any real, real stars. And do you feel it's... In, I mean, Jamie Porter made a pretty compelling case last year. Kind of coming almost from nowhere. I think he'd obviously taken a lot of Division 2 wickets. But he wouldn't have said he's going to bowl Essex to the county championship. Do you feel it's important to have a county cricket representative there as well to show you've got the kind of your wisdom and got the finger on the pulse there too? Yeah, but again, you wouldn't want to force the issue. I mean, if, yeah. if, there, if the five the five are all internationals who've made unanswerable cases, then that you know that, that's what will happen. But mm. I, I do like to have a county player for the for the reason you give, and you know, a big chunk of wisdom is the the, the four day reports from county cricket, eighteen first class counties. They punch above their weight in the pages of wisdom. Really, mm. overseas readers sometimes complain that it's too English. And my answer to that is, well, it is an English book, and we've we've tried Wisden in Australia for eight years. It didn't work. Uh, Wisden India's been going for six years. You know, hopefully that will keep going for a while longer. But Wisden is essentially an English idea, so we do have to um, reflect the love of county cricket. Mm. The criteria for selection, I suppose, Shai Hope is a prime example of that. West Indies toured last year, and he was a standout player, 745. Runs something like that, or maybe yeah. I've just chucked on a few extra on there. <laughs> well, well, the, well, no, sorry, 375 runs, an average of 75, but also the first first batsman in a first class game at Headingley to score 100 in both innings. Yeah. Uh, so, is it the same in the same way as uh, as Heather and Anya? A pretty simple choice. It was the the, the Headingley miracle part too, wasn't it? Really, when you look at it, considering how what what had happened a week or so beforehand under lights in Birmingham. It was, yeah. I mean, all the, le- yeah. the West Indies legends lining up to... I mean, obviously, it hurts them to see their side playing so poorly, but I did feel sorry for that team after that first test defeat. And I think English cricket fans, I think, were probably a bit divided there because there was something great about seeing what West Indies did. I certainly wasn't necessarily rooting for England that strongly in that in that test match. Well, I agree. I think there's a lot of nostalgia for West Indies cricket mm. in this country. I, I think I asked on Twitter... Are England fans happy that they've just marmalised West Indies in three days at Edgbaston... Uh, and or would you rather see West Indies put up a fight? And I say opinion must split among England fans. You've got the hardcore, oh, we'll take a win above it, we don't care, just beat them. <laughs> and, then, and then the others are like, no, this is bad for They take the sort of more liberal, yeah. broader global perspective. They, they want West Indies to be good. So, yeah, I agree. I think that was one of the most unexpected results in test history. Yeah. It was fantastic. Just on that uh, allegiance thing, just briefly, for the first time ever, hand on heart, I wanted England to get beaten again. Mm-hmm. When, it, when, it, when it was bubbling up, and it could have gone either way, and somehow the boy was still there, still batting on. And, uh, and for the first time ever, I thought, yeah, I, I actually wanted them to lose a test match. First and hopefully only time. Although I could, they could kind of buy a win at some point down the next few years, that'd be useful. And it was also the first time, I suppose, we'd seen that particular crop of West Indian players actually stand up to what was being thrown at them. I think, as you've mentioned, the week before, when they were done inside three days, there was an element of, well, they're just, they're just going to roll over the first time of resistance, the first time of trouble. And... There's Shy Hope, button up shirt, collar up as well, just going about his business. Um, yeah, wonderful to see. Leading woman of the year as well, Mithali Raj, also quite prevalent during the World Cup, leading cricketer in the world, you've gone for Virat Kohli, who was last year's cover star. Right, yeah. A new award this year, though, the leading T20 cricketer in the world. Um, well, I suppose there's no finer recipient than Afghanistan's Rashid Khan. Yeah, nice one to, to give. He's, he's supposedly a teenager, um, and I mean, I, I, I ruined it. I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't really care how old he is. Actually, he's just a brilliant. He's a brilliant bowler. His googly seems to be the most dangerous delivery in T20 cricket at the moment. He got 
80 odd T20 wickets if you count all the franchise stuff last year which was miles ahead of anyone else he barely goes for any runs and over and he's playing for a country which of course is the, the great good news story of the last few years they'll be playing their first test later this year so a, a lovely one um, to, to give and uh, you know I'd love to see him play England actually in a test match I'd love to see how they dealt with his googling It's quite interesting speaking to people who played against him in the BBL and they said actually his leg doesn't turn that much certainly not in Australia but it's the it's the one that goes the other way and the speed that it goes the other way mm. that seems to catch him unaware so you know on that principle we should clean up in the IPL It's interesting as well because T20 sometimes you can get fans someone seems to be very very good for about three months and then fades quickly and obviously he's still young but he's been around for a while now he's also got He's the fastest to 100 ODI wickets, beat Mitchell yeah. Stark's record the other day. I think he's only played a couple of first-class matches and uh, cleaned up the Lions. Uh, and we'll get a chance to see what he can do against India this, this summer. But he's clearly, he's, he's won this award, but he's by no means a 2020 player. That just happens to be yeah. where he's got most of his opportunities Exactly. So far. I mean, the, the, the sad thing would be if he became a kind of Noreen or a Badri, you know, an absolute specialist at white ball cricket and unhittable on a day, but doesn't, don't play anything else. So that is... That is Rashid Khan's challenge, I think. Actually, incidentally, we've got an interview with him in the issue after next of Wisdom Cricket Monthly to look forward to. On a message. Am I allowed to plug? No, I mean, you're allowed to plug. It's your podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of course I'm allowed <laughs> to plug. Yeah. Um, so moving on to the editor's notes, often quite a contentious part of Wisdom, because I suppose from your point of view, you've got to sum up everything and, and at, yeah, at the same time really focus in a key, on a key element over the last 12 months went to print just before all this uh, Tamri stuff kicked off but the the issues you address in there England's winter of ifs and buts starting with what happened with Ben Stokes in Bristol and ending with Joe Root flat on his back floored by gastroenteritis in Sydney not to mention the 4-0 Ashes drubbing you also mentioned women in cricket we often, we've just spoken about the World Cup but I suppose this that in particular that piece by Tamri Alder if we can talk about that first that seems to I suppose strike a different chord with um, well certainly when I read it yeah, I mean, Tanya wrote about sexism in cricket. And the slightly strange thing about that piece was that I commissioned it before the Harvey Weinstein stuff happened. So it somehow tapped into the zeitgeist without me realising. And, and actually, I, I think it's one of the best pieces in the book. I mean, she she has come down very hard on men, and reasonably so, I think, in cricket. I mean, you know, cr- cricket reflects society, so cricket doesn't have a particular problem, but she does highlight some of the problems cricket has. She goes back in history to look at the role of women. There's a great story about the suffragettes burning down the pavilion at Neville Road, Tunbridge Wells, in 1913, which I, to my shame, didn't didn't know that story, but they, they took offence at apparently a, a member had made a comment about something like, I thought the women only came here to make the teas. Anyway, next day the pavilion was burnt down, so Nicely that done. taught them. Yeah. Um, and so, and she, she cites some, there are some quite sensitive stories in there about the treatment that some women have had, uh, anonymous for, for, for legal reasons, but incidents in press boxes and so on. She leads, of course, with Chris Gale, Don't Blush Baby, that incident, which kind of got people thinking a bit about sexism in sport. But, and we go with a provocative headline, which I, I'll, I'll let people find that out because it's it's almost it's almost a hard one to say, actually, but we did, we did think very hard about whether to include it. We thought, no, We've got to give the worst kind of example of the sort of thing that women have to deal with on Twitter. This is an insult aimed at Lizzie Ammer, the Times cricket writer, who is happy for the headline to be used. Um, because unless we have a proper in-depth debate about the way women, some women are treated by some men, we won't actually make any progress. Often it's, it's the notes that tend to elicit change or elicit, elicit debate. This strikes me as a piece that might even overtake the editor's notes in terms of how important it is. 
Yeah, I, I think so. And, and because we've got, you know, we've got Anya Shrubsoul on the cover, we've got three women out of five in the five. We've got Tanya's piece. I, if this is known as the women's issue, brilliant. You know, I, I hope that Tanya's piece trumps all else in the book because it deserves to. You also touch on betting's prevalence in cricket, and I suppose, you know, you only need to look around the county ground to see various betting adverts, even on the advertising hoardings. Um, I suppose it's been a long, a long issue with cricket, you know, having its hand in that jar and also trying to fight against corruption. Um, your focus in particular, what, what about that? Because I suppose you could have written that at any time, not just in this issue. I could have done, yes, you're right. Why did I think this issue? It, it just struck me as getting increasingly ridiculous. Um, I was watching, you know, watch some of BT's coverage of the Ashes and every ad break there was Ray Winston coming on sort of in his gravelly roguish voice telling people to um, gamble responsibly and I thought hang on a second cricket is claims to be fighting corruption I'm not equating Ray Winston with corruption God, he'll be around my house right, if I do that but just or, his or floating in, head yes the <laughs> all this stuff is legal of course it is but I think there is a there is a slight sort of there's some cognitive dissonance if you like between the fact that cricket wants to fight gambling and the fact that we're as a sport we're always promoting it I dare say there's an ad for gambling in wisdom this year but hopefully no one will spot that one um, <laughs> it's interesting isn't it there's now a kind of acceptance that having a betting shop on every corner is, is not the right thing to do it's exploitative but we haven't got anywhere near that level on, on um, sport because adverts are everywhere you're encouraging at every step you watch yeah, right. Sunday football there'll be an advert which is just for betting and then you're back to the game I mean it, it's just in your face the whole time the, the British Gambling Association, or, or whatever they're called, they think that their two two million Brits have got a, a problem with gambling. Um, uh, the, the gambling industry took nearly fourteen billion pounds off punters last year. So there, there is clearly, you could argue it's preying on the vulnerable. That's the side of it. I don't, I don't really like, and I think cricket is. I mean, the line I think I use is that cricket is you know, feels like an enabler of gambling at the moment. This might be something to open up to Phil and Joe because I feel like the, the editors know it's heaps pressure onto you and you might see it as, you know, you're not a holier than thou bloke, you're not someone who buys into that spirit of cricket nonsense, but you must feel that when this time comes around, when you sit down to write your editors notes, this is, you have to, it has to be on message. And I suppose, Phil, similar to you with your um, with your editor's letter at the start, every mag. I mean, you're, you're going to laugh. Didn't feel especially definitive when I wrote it at half six this morning <laughs> before we went to print. But it's, uh, you know, what was just, you just that responsibility? Yeah, just on on the the issue that we've literally in the last couple of hours put to bed. Joe and I probably agree on this. It was the hardest issue we've ever had to put put together. Um, on the various incarnations of magazines, cricket magazines that we've done over the years, and in part because cricket feels morally on a knife edge, and the, the game has been presented with with certain kinds of uh, dilemmas. With it. it's been trying to wrestle with them over the last couple of weeks. We changed our front cover literally three or four times in in a week, and the the whole mood of the magazine shifted. Uh, you mentioned earlier that Lawrence's Lawrence took the book to print just before the ball tampering thing kicked off. And so we went to Lawrence and said, do you want to use the magazine as the platform? Because the news churn is relentless. And the next scandal is always around the corner, or the next talking point is always around the corner. And so finding the right kind of tone can be tricky sometimes. And it's hard from personally, speaking personally, to find the right line between being uh, emotionally invested and, if you like, uh, 
professionally uh, observing of the situation, you know. And, and I've always felt with cricket, I, I react with my heart sometimes more than my head. And I found the last few weeks a very, very kind of tricky uh, spirit of the age to try and sum the thing up, you know. I have found that quite hard. So I'm full of admiration for, for the big man over there, the way that he, he walks that line with the book. Um, but cricket has, cricket has been, it's, it's had one of its, its kind of collective meltdowns that it, it, it tends to, to favour from time to time. And it's, you know, I haven't been able to turn the TV on without you being on Sky Sports, Lawrence, or you being on the Sky BBC. And lead, lead item on BBC yeah. News on a Sunday evening. Yeah. Well, Joe, you, we were just talking about it outside, that when you went and did the BBC, that this producer who... I'd, by you know, research and had no understanding of cricket, just couldn't believe it had happened, but clearly didn't understand what had happened. Yeah, and I think that the the crime uh, got elevated to a level that was it never never came close to reaching, but partly because people who are reporting on it didn't necessarily understand the ins and outs of cricket, and so it was being equated to the match fixing uh, saga a few years ago, which is not accurate at all. I don't I don't see them as as comparisons. That was the ticker tape, right? When you were on on the BBC, so yeah, the BBC, the ticker tape ran along the bottom saying. Um, Australian fixing scandal, um, which obviously I guess they they fixed the ball is probably what they're getting at, but it's a very different thing. And obviously, <laughs> cricket is a particularly emotive emotive term. Um, but yeah, just in terms of putting the magazine together, it's it's been uh, most challenging. I agree with Phil, the most challenging that we've done, but actually also one of the most enjoyable. And I don't say that because I'm English and I've enjoyed watching the Australian squirm. That was quite fun at the start, but then as it got more and more serious, that fun kind of. Uh, phased out of it. Uh, when you see Smith crying, you've got to have a pretty cold heart not to feel sorry for the bloke then. But actually, it just it, it challenged us to think about what we think about these things, how to represent them. You've got an interest in cricket that you don't usually have. And it's also inspired some of the best writing we've had, certainly since we've started Wisdom Cricket Monthly. We've had some brilliant writing this month, and I would say uh, it is the best issue we've, we've done so far. When you've got Jeff Lemon, who's watched this whole thing unfold in Australia, from day one, he's been doing podcasts, he's been doing media, and it's it, it's kind of personally affected the person who's writing about it. You don't necessarily always get that in cricket, so it's been quite, in its own way, quite an enjoyable experience. It, it's been interesting from my point of view. I, I ghostwrite Kumar Sangakkara's column, and uh, sometimes it's a double, and other times it's not, and over the last few days there's been quite a lot of back and forth. And uh, his essential point Firstly, he writes a beautiful thing about Peterson um, in recognition of his retirement. Uh, and he's doing these sort of colour pieces on great players, every issue. But, but the ball tampering thing he, he deals with, and, and he sent me in the end three or four different versions. And his essential point is that these three figures uh, are the four guys for, for behaviour over the last 30 years within the game. Um, and while he doesn't question for a, mi a moment the guilt that was staring us all in the face, he feels like they've essentially carried the can for a, for a game rooted in hypocrisy that has been turning a blind eye to this, this very real uh, reality, um, day by day, week by week. The, the, the literal quote is, there isn't a team out there in the last 30 years that's not tampered with a, with a cricket ball. Now, Sangakara, as we all know, is a reasonably measured kind of character and measures his words. So for him to feel like that, was really a bit of an eye-opener for me. You wrote a piece for some website or other, I believe, a, a while back about ball tampering. Brilliant piece, to be fair. Well, this is a thing. It was about reverse swing and then Sorry. enter into ball tampering. it was tampering. about reverse swing. So, but 
Uh, but that you stumbled on a point there because naturally not all reverse swing is ball tampering, but all tampering is for reverse swing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's for no other reason. It's not because if you want to get a ball old to, to, so that it can, you know you can get your spinners on, you do it anyway. And even then, with the prowler seam, you probably get a bit more from the gun spinner. So it was interesting actually because I actually got asked to do a bit of TV as well, and, oh, the, yeah. and the, the message I got was, "Oh, we, can you come on and do um, and do a few minutes on your ball tampering article?" I was like, "Well, it's not about ball tampering." Yeah. Which I suppose shows a confusion here and backs up what Sankara says. If you're watching, you know, Jared Kimber wrote a good article on this recently. If you're watching a great spell of reverse swing, guess where it's probably come from? Mm. So, Sankara says um, it has to be rooted out. Uh, we have to all get together as, as the cricket fraternity, as he puts it, uh, and root out this evil, which is the word that he uses. Now. And he supports the, the bands as well, doesn't he? He, support the, he, say, he says the that the sanctions are harsh, which... unquestionably, but if, if this brings a debate out into the open and finally people are fronting up about that which has taken place over the last 25, 30 years, then he thinks that they, there may be some good to come from this. It's easier when you stop playing, isn't it? Well, indeed, yeah. <laughs> but just the, the... But in, in your, the conversations that you had when you were putting that piece together... Yeah, yeah. ...off the record, anonymous conversations... Um, of which you've relayed a few, a few to me over the, over the time, uh, your impression was, what, prevalent, to say the least? Or yeah, not? Well, I think the, the issue with what's happened just now is the fact that it, it was so blatant and, and the use of Sambi, Sambi seemed to have you know, just lifted the emotions a bit on, into um, hysteria because you know, people find different ways to shine the ball. There's a technique I've show, I've, I was shown where you can basically hold the ball in, in one hand with your shirt and look like you're shining the ball with the top of your hand, but then you're actually scratching it underneath. Um, yeah, loads of different variations like that. And I think the one thing that really struck me was that this was so brazen, you might well have taken out you know, a chainsaw and mm. got a ball in, in some people's eyes. But it was interesting, you know, you talked about Jeff Lemon's piece earlier. Lemon was at the epicentre of it. And he, it's a very emotional piece because he basically talks about at this point where he's just staring at a wall, not really sure what to do with himself, picks himself up and then goes and runs through with the story from front to back and ends up quite angry, doesn't mm-hmm. he? And there's a line mm-hmm. that he says here, you know, while the three who have taken responsibility, there are others who have taken no responsibility at all. And it, it ends up crossing over into Lawrence, your piece, where, where you finish with, well, you don't finish with it, but the standout line for me was CA's integrity unit settled on a best case scenario. Well, there were only three involved and no one else. You've obviously written quite a few words about this for the Daily Mail yeah. as well. Yeah, it's been non-stop. Um, you know, there's nothing a sort of mid-market tabloid likes better than to dance on Australian graves, and they, they've surely done that for the last week. But it, it has raised some interesting questions. You know, I think Smith, Warner and Bancroft have all received praise in some quarters for coming clean, as, as the phrase has been used. To me, there are still lots of questions to be answered. Um, is it, was it really the case that only three of them were involved? Did, did the coach really not know? And were, were, um, has it has it happened before? You know, Warner was asked in his press conference in Sydney recently, and he he just took refuge in his stock answer about taking responsibility for what he did. So there are questions hanging in the air, and that goes back to Sangakara's point, probably, which is that these three are to a degree being scapegoated. I mean, I would you know, it's interesting that he thinks it's for the behaviour of world cricket over the last thirty years. I would be more specific and say it's mainly for the behaviour of this Australian team over the last 10-15 years. Uh, lots of people have grown sick and tired of it and Australia have not been challenged and that's the point I make in the piece. They've been, they've been allowed to behave like brats for a long time and these are the three guys who are now paying the price. I mean, I, I, I would add, sorry Lawrence, yeah. just about Sankara's piece that he did also make that point yeah. as well. That yeah. 
digging deeper, there is something not quite right in, in Australian cricketing culture. Yeah. And if that can be eked out as a consequence of this, then that's a positive thing. I think that's right, yeah. I mean, so you're going back to the point you made a few minutes back about wisdom. I mean, wisdom, I guess, if it was to be self-important, make a self-important statement about itself, would say that it's the, the conscience of cricket, I suppose, is the best way of looking at it. And the trick is not to be too moralistic about that. You know, you've, you can't... You'll, you'll irritate your readers if you're too holier than thou. You've got to be... You've got to show you care about the game, but you don't want to pontificate too much. I, you're right, I don't really buy into the spirit of cricket stuff. I just think that's a hangover from the old days when the old amateur gentlemen tried to control the game and when they walked, it was it was them telling the working-class umpires that they weren't going to take orders from them. You know, it had nothing to do with behaving like a, a, a more a superior human being. So I think that's a, that's a hangover that still does damage to the game. But wisdom can kind of have a... A strong independent voice that's its that is its charm essentially it is independent and is beholden to no one you did write in your piece that appeared in the magazine about david warner um that the wall had been pulled over a few people's eyes with regards to this the resurrection of david warner from the bull to the reverend and so on um the behavior around johnny bairstow in particular uh over the winter without going into details was was also referenced in your piece and the role he played in the vilification of bairstow at brisbane you also said world cricket will be better off without him explain that to me um i've never watched warner on the field and okay i like watching him bat when he's destroying an attack who wouldn't you know that you've got to admire the sort of sheer brazenness of, of his batting I've never liked watching him in the field. I think he's he's thuggish. Um, I thought his reaction to one of the runouts in the South African series was he went over the edge, basically. Mm. His eyes were swivelling and he lost it. And it was almost as if his teammates were holding him back from, from hitting Markram, who was the not-out batsman. Yeah. Uh, that, was, that was a worrying moment for me. And, it, and it was, I think it was symptomatic of the problem this Australian cricket team had, which was that that moment wasn't really picked up by anyone. No one said Warner is out of control, and this says something about the culture of the team. I mean, I see, I see the same thing to a lesser degree in Virat Kohli. When, when India take a wicket, Virat Kohli's tendency is to run towards the batsman first rather than towards his teammates. You see it time and again, but he will never get picked up on it. And that we could be facing a problem with him at some point. That's he, maybe, maybe this summer. That's, and that's the thing, he's setting his own boundaries, isn't it? Yeah. He will only stop because he decides he shouldn't go that far. No one is going to step in. That's right. And I guess, well, I don't know the full details about why Kumble was pushed to one side, but I understood that it was for questioning Kohli on, on issues of selection or questioning him on anything, really. Um, and it would be yeah. interesting to see how, because it will be volatile against England. And yeah. you have, uh, we mentioned this in the magazine as well, the way the demerit point system is set up, I think it does encourage this kind of behaviour. If you see someone who is volatile, you deliberately wind them up. Yeah. Uh, we've seen that in South Korean India series. Uh, you see it with Ben Stokes. Uh, and I imagine we'll see England trying to do it to Cody this summer as well, and I think that the system needs looking at. You're listening to episode three of the Wisdom Cricket Podcast. We've talked about the Wisdom Almanac, we've talked about tampering and how Australia is in ruins. Now it's time to talk about England. Three. Phil, I'm going to throw it immediately to you. I thought with, you might. with some numbers first. A winter of discontent. Winters. Yeah. Well, one winter. We don't, let's not split it, otherwise we're just going to be... But I think these numbers are going to spread across various winters, mm, aren't they? Yeah, it's reality maybe. of things. Well, not these first set. 4-0 in the Ashes. Yeah. 1-0 to New Zealand. Yeah. The stat you're talking about. 10 away defeats in 13 tests. Yeah. yeah. And no wins in that time. 
No wins, three draws, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I wrote the the leader to this magazine this morning and, and weirdly, almost counterintuitively, I started in the in the gloom of the Hagley Oval in front of next to nobody except a few Hardy Barmy Army souls and a leg spinner blocking it out for three hours in England, kind of wearily trying, vainly, uh, to pick up the last couple of wickets. And it seemed, after all the, the, the craziness of the last few weeks, it actually seemed weirdly reassuring <laughs> to see England just <laughs> failing again to compete uh, away from home and packing their bags and heading back to home comforts. And there was something recognisably bleak about it that we haven't really experienced over the last few weeks. Um, the 27 for 9 moment, that threw this magazine out because we'd done something very nice with Broad and Anderson, who are unquestionably two of the greats and who came together 10 years ago that, this month back in New Zealand. So we thought it was a really cute piece and we got an interview done. Dean Wilson did it from the mirror. We got lovely, lovely photographs. And then we woke up and there were 27 for 9. And we'd, and we'd hoped moving into that silly mini-series, you can't even call it a series, two test matches, that there would be a degree of self-respect recovered, only a degree, after the horrors of what went before, 27 for 9. And so then balance tends to go out of the window and you start to worry, you start to worry, are, is this something genuinely fundamental here? Is the, is, is the system so, so bent and crooked and broken that, that this is an inevitability year after year? Have we set in now? Or is this a cyclical thing? Is this a blip? Uh, so we ran a load of stories in the, in, in the magazine related to that. Lawrence wrote, wrote a piece actually for the website, which has also appeared in, in this magazine, about county cricket's lack of fitness for purpose in truth. I don't want to put words specifically into your mouth, Lawrence, but while there's no one who doesn't adore county cricket around this table, and hopefully the listeners too, there is a recognition that the way the thing is structured now and the marginalisation of four-day cricket. I did some sums. Surrey are going to be playing 16 days of first-class cricket in the best part of three months in the middle of the season. Um, so we, we know that the structure is questionable, to say the least. You wrote this piece, Lawrence. Can you try and elaborate on it for us? Yeah, I mean, the structure is quite, the structure's always been questionable. It's getting worse now because they are marginalising it to the beginning and the end of the season. That won't help. However, it was already terrible. And county cricket was already... When it comes to producing teams to win in England, it's great. When it comes to producing teams to win away, it's always been hopeless. I mean, the, the fact that you can... We, we remember England's great wins because they're, they're so rare away from home. 54-55, we think of 86-87, 10-11. We think of the win in India a few years back. A couple of wins in South Africa where conditions aren't that great. And that is pretty well it, ever. Yeah, yeah. Ever. And yeah, that's because county cricket pr um, promotes... Uh, a certain amount of quantity, a, a very specific type of quantity, we're talking sort of 80 mile an hour right arm seamers uh, and batsmen who are sort of who are limited because of the, the, the pitches. I know other people have made this point. Um, uh, so it, it's, it's never produced players capable of winning on flat pitches away from home. So that was, that was fundamentally my point. I quoted Stephen Finn who said that mm. as a young fast bowler, remember when he was the, the next big thing for English cricket? Yeah. He has now fallen back into the pack and I, I can't see him ever being a force in test cricket again. He's saying that the county grind takes the nip out of you. I would see 
County cricket is another anachronism. It, it started for all kinds of reasons. It started because the, the rich amateurs wanted control over the working class professionals. They didn't want them playing for the William Clark 11 and making money. So they got them in their county teams and that way it has stayed. The status quo has remained because people who love it, 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 it it's burdened by this great affection. Yeah. And the affection sort of suffocates it fundamentally and, and doesn't give it room to get better. When the ECB wanted to cut the programme from 16 to 12, I'd have gone further to 10. Yeah. The counties are no, no, 14. Now they all moan about the fact that it's asymmetrical. And there's always some moan going on. Fundamentally, English cricket doesn't want to change because it is wedded to conservatism. There is another alarming development over the last couple of months, of course. What happened to the Lions when they went out to the West Indies? They got beat 3 0. And the cream of the, the crop behind the, the senior team are not really delivering either. You were out in Barbados for this. This north-south old-fashioned trial. How would you describe it? And 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 what was your impression? Not just of the players on show, but the general mood around the camp. Bearing in mind there was Strauss, Ramprakash, um, various other coaches. The whole coterie of the inner saints of, of English English cricket was there. What were they watching? So what what they were watching were three actually quite intense and quite high-quality fifty-over matches. The one feeling I got when I left the North South was basically they've just made, they've just organised it that they've got a Loughborough away from home. Because there were a number of things that went on in that tour which were quite impressive and at the same time felt very, very close to the, the, the national centre they've got over there in the university complex. They, every single player in the North South had to meet with. The two selectors who are out there, I'm not sure how long they'll be selectors for, but McNeil and Gus Fraser and Andy Flower. And I think Strauss was there as well. Maybe it was Strauss instead of Flower. In fact, yes, it was Strauss instead of Flower. And they had to tell them why they should be picked for the 2019 World Cup. So the players themselves? Yeah. It was a Dragon's Den style situation. They had to walk into this room and essentially, you know, like Jordan Belfort, sell me this pen. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and bear in mind you've got players like Sam Northeast who has an exceptional white ball record over the past few years yep. and someone like Don Bess an off spinner from Somerset who only made his list day debut in the Lions games mm-hmm. now that's all well and good it probably tells them a lot about what they need to know about you know a player's character about how much they push themselves and the players seem to quite enjoy that because I suppose it's a lot of it's, it, for them it's getting FaceTime with people they don't usually get FaceTime with but I did hear those stories and the first time I thought oh that's quite interesting and the more and more it kind of washed over me I thought yeah, can't get, get the guitar. Yeah, you know, let's go. What if you are a very determined, very skillful young player, but who's very introverted and doesn't have much to say for yourself? Does that does that really make you a less capable test cricketer? And the, the suggestion is, they kind of think it does. Yeah, because you've got to be tough and you've got to be psychologically capable to deal yeah. with. But I don't know if that backs up. I'm sure we can think of plenty of examples of of test cricketers who didn't necessarily well, well most left that, arm spinners who have ever played for England and possibly the current one as well you know yeah. who turned up and looked, looked okay but baffling that Jack Leach has not featured up until now um, the rumour is you know that he's, he is quite an introverted kind of character and maybe this in the kind of ultra professional world that, that cricket now exists in maybe that is deemed to be problematic from top brass well it's interesting because one of the things I found when speaking to players and asking them about this particular meeting was the different answers. So, you know, I think someone like Northeast was a bit more bullshit because he could be, because he has the numbers to mm. back it up. But uh, Don Best mentioned that he said that, you know, I know I'm not here to push for 2019, but the next World Cup's in India. Turns out there, I'll have four years under my belt. 
Nice. Uh, want to be picked there. And there were a couple of players who were on that tour because of injury and were primarily Red Bull bowlers. One of them has made your list, Lawrence, who basically went in there and knew he couldn't, couldn't push for, you know, for a white ball for a white ball position. So basically, just laid out his test case. Just yeah. said, you know, 120 wickets in the last two seasons. Um, back me, I think, I think he can do a job. So it was interesting the, the take that people had, but. I suppose ultimately they didn't want to go in there without an answer and they wanted to come in there with something positive and maybe even to seem a, a bit brave when maybe they are a bit insular in, in normal time. So it was, it was about getting people out of their confidence zone but I couldn't help but feel like oh, this is just a little bit too, you know, let's find out what you're all about, you know, let's get to the nitty gritty of who you are rather than how good a player you are. Can I ask you, Lawrence, do you think that this will change again or do you think that the system is so fundamentally flawed that uh, as you said earlier it's always going to be the exception that proves the rule if England go away and compete in Australia or India yeah yeah pretty well so so the die is broadly cast then well unless people accept the need for fundamental change I mean unless we we have a system that allows fast bowlers to bowl fast all year round yeah don't sort of keep things under the, you know, their sleeve for August and September. Yeah. We have pitches that help spinners. We have captains who trust leg spinners. Yeah. English cricket as a whole embraces orthodoxy. I mean, the, you know, the reason Kevin Peterson was such a star, one of the many reasons, was because he, he did all sorts of things, switch hits and reverse sweeps and all that. Mm-hmm. Owen Morgan was, was another... And generally these people come from the outside, from South Africa, from Ireland. So unless England actually... Unless the county's kind of take a hit and say, you know, we really are here for the England team. We're not just here for our members. Yeah. You know, the, one of my big grouses in English cricket is the members have run the show for too long. And it, and it does and the, the numbers are pretty minimal, but, aren't they? They are minimal and they, they are important. They support the clubs, etc., etc. But it is, a, it is a bloated system that will never, unless it changes, produce uh, teams winning, capable of winning regularly abroad. I suppose the, you know, the starkest um, evidence of that is the series just gone with New Zealand this was supposed to be you know I say supposed to be obviously New Zealand have a very fine attack but I, I certainly expected England to at least take one test off them and well, this is it I mean you think close, you, but, you lose in India because they're a very good side and we're not great at playing spinning we haven't got great spinners you lose in Australia because they've got good quicks and we haven't got good quicks and you can kind of like well it's unfortunate you don't want to get hammered like we did but you can kind of see why go to New Zealand you're playing a swinging ball I mean this the conditions aren't identical but they're not too far similar from uh, too far different from what we'll expect in April and May here. So, also, yeah, Saudi and Bolt aren't Hazelwood and Stark in terms of pace. Yeah. You, know, you could say that England were blown out of the water because of... I, d- I did read, though, just in brackets on those two, those two plus Wagner, the best trio in terms of overall test strike rate, stroke average, I think it was, since Bishop, Ambrose and Walsh back in the very early 90s. Not bad, though. Yeah. No, I mean, English batsmanship, I think, is at its lowest ebb for a long time. When they won in Australia 2010-11, I think the top seven all averaged at least 40. Now we've got one guy averages 40 who can't score a run, that's to Cook. The other guy, Joe Root, who keeps getting 50 and getting out. Everyone else is in the 30s. I mean, even Stokes, who we all agree is a great cricketer, averages 35 at number six. I mean, there aren't, I know he bowls, but there aren't many test teams around the world who accommodate a number six who averages 35, no matter how many overs he bowls. So, Moeen Ali is in the same kind of boat and we're accommodating Stoneman and Vince uh, and, and Milan to a less degree I know he had a good ashes but he slightly went backwards in New Zealand I would say because he got stuck on the crease so it's fair that ashes play? came as a surprise as well it, it did a bit but yeah. even, though, even though there was enough time for him in a, in a five match series to so it's fine form we're two match series you know, sure I think in, our, in this feature we've got on England's um, winter, winters of discontent 
we've got Nick Compton, who's who just got on board as a as a columnist, uh, who writes about what Lawrence is describing, really, declining batsmanship. He takes it, starts off by talking more broadly about test cricket. He thinks skills have dramatically dipped over the last few years, that cricket skills maybe overall have increased, but actually when you take it down to test cricket, a lot of the skills like patience, application, technique, have declined. It's interesting because he's a real dasher, wasn't he, Compton? Well, this is the point. And obviously he was not everyone's cup of tea, (laughs) clearly. Uh, and people didn't necessarily like watching him bat, and it's not like he had a fantastic record he can talk about. But he no, was, but I mean, he talks sense on this. But one, he was actually. part of three overseas tours. He won in South Africa, he won in India, and uh, drew in New Zealand with a bit of help, mind you. I'm not saying it was all all down to Nick Compton, but he calls we, for them to glamour, doesn't he? To a point. It, it, this and this is the at that point we, when Compton and, and previously Jonathan Trott, which is probably more pertinent, were batting the way they did. A lot of people did complain. Yeah. They wanted, and Bayliss even came out and said after Compton had uh, set a platform for the win in, in Durban that he wanted two kind of dashes in his top three, which no which matter what, on reflections are pretty lucky. Even aside from what that does to the kind of the, the psyche of a player who's just played a kind of helpful match winning performance, <laughs> um, it really also now, particularly as you look at where we are now, just sounds plain stupid, really. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, speaking of Bayliss, Jonathan Liu, um, columnist, uh, chief writer for The Independent, says in this issue, that Bayliss has got to go, the job's too big for him. Um, Shield Berry in the Telegraph a couple of days ago echoed those sentiments. My, my mate Batchy, has been saying it for months. Yeah, well. there you well, go. And he's, he's right. And, and in our letters pages. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Under his real name? or Yeah, actually this ah. time, yeah. Um, Lawrence, you know, you've spent more time than any of us around the table at Bayliss press conferences, at Bayliss briefings. Oh, it's all glamour, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it really is. What do you make of... Uh, I mean, he's going to go anyway at the end of... The end of next Which season, incidentally was a strange declaration, wasn't it? Oh, I'll, I'll be off in a year and a half. I'm, I'm okay. going to be off in a year and a half. I don't want to do the T20, so that's three games in the next two years. I can't be asked turning up to. <laughs> uh, Lawrence, where yeah. do you fall on, well, on Bayless? I mean, English cricket's been burned slightly by the previous experience of splitting the coaches when Andy Flower wouldn't always let Ashley Giles have the best players for the white ball teams with, with predictable consequences. So we feel that that's been done and it hasn't worked. But there is a, there is a strong case for it now. And Bayliss was actually hired by Strauss because he saw him wandering around in a, uh, between super overs in, a, in an IPL game looking quite calm. And he thought, hang on, this is, this is what we need. A guy who wasn't quite, doesn't give a damn, but doesn't spread panic to the players. And, and let's be fair, the white ball team, the 50 over team is sensational ground. Right. That is a lot of that is down to the, the, the sort of attitude that Bayliss has imparted. But at Test cricket, they've I think they've won fifteen out of forty Tests under Bayliss. Now that is a lot worse than Peter Moore's managed, and he was sacked twice. Um, <laughs> I mean, so, it's not funny, but it's a little bit. They're starting to mount up these results. Um, we can't just say that we, it, it's tough to win in India and Australia, though it is. It's the manner of the defeats. Well, England are getting thrashed regularly. And it's only the home stuff that, that keeps him in the job. So there is a strong case now for saying, Bayliss, go and win us the World Cup in 2019. If you do that, you have fulfilled the brief that was handed to you by Andrew Strauss. That was the reason you got on board. We thought our test team was OK. It's gone backwards. Let's get someone else to concentrate on that. Concentrate on what we want you to win for the good of cricket in this country, new fans, etc. So you bring someone else to take on that test role? I would. Now you're going to ask me who. Um, well, Jason <laughs> Gillespie's just signed a three-year contract with Sussex, which doesn't help, but he would be... Uh, an obvious candidate, another Australian, but I don't, I don't care about the nationality particularly. Um, Farbrace wouldn't be a bad shout. Some people might say he's too similar to 
Bayliss. Um, he's he's a people's person. Farbrace. He puts his arm around the players. They they would respect him. It, it, just not Bayliss, basically. <laughs> John, uh, Jonathan Lee touched on this in his piece. He says as much as almost as important as the individual is that is the type of coach that you're going for. And you do, as we touched on, you kind of flip flop from one to the other. So Moore's was seen as too involved and micromanaging. So then you go to Bayliss, and then everyone's like, well, he's not doing anything. So then do we end up going back to someone like Peter Moores, who probably didn't really deserve the reputation that he had anyway, certainly data-wise? Um, or do we accept that actually we need to find someone in the middle? And, and who is that? I mean, he mentioned Paul Collingwood was another name that he, he picked out, perhaps too close to some of the team. Um, or Otis Gibson going and nicking him back off South Africa. I mean, he seems We're to be very... We're just speaking from the same it. pool, aren't we? Yeah. We're just... But it's quite a punt just to say someone out of county cricket who's yeah. got a good record in county cricket, who's obviously a good coach, and say, well, you, you, you take charge of winning such a game. We, we, Under 19 World Cup? Indeed. And we have been. Gareth Southgate after this summer? <laughs> You'll be free, probably. But we have been burnt by seeing how some, some, some big reputations, some players with big reputations, thought of Peter Moores. Obviously, Kevin Peterson being the prime example, but he wasn't the only one who, without that kind of international cricket stature around him, didn't carry the same weight. Do you think it'll be easier, though, for someone in county cricket to come through because there aren't actually too many big personalities in that team now? Possibly. Even Stokes is actually fairly mellow when it comes to that kind of stuff. And also the mood has changed that the way Bayliss has talked about county cricket and acknowledged that he doesn't really watch it and doesn't know a lot about players. <laughs> Amazing that, isn't it? Yeah. Really saying it. <laughs> it does feel that we will end up with someone who does know a lot about county cricket to kind of offset that attitude because especially when it's clear that we don't have a good enough batting lineup, so we need players from county cricket to come in and they might not necessarily be the bloke that scored a thousand runs in Division 2 they might be the bloke that has averaged 35 in Division 1 but played on some tricky pitches and played some big innings against high quality bowlers but the fact is Bayliss doesn't know that I mean I wonder we'll ever get another coach again who actually coaches mm. I mean you go back to the last England coach who actually coached was Duncan Fletcher in terms of technique, batsmen, you know, the bowlers weren't so keen on him, but the batsmen all talk about how he actually improved their game. With Spot reverence him. even now. I yeah, I mean, yeah. incredible. They, yeah. You know, they swore by him. Anyone who's ever got close to Duncan Fletcher, I used to go to his column for the Guardian, I got a soft spot for him, but uh, he, he talks such sense on the game. And we got away from that because we've got all these what, peripheral was guys. Was Flower in, in that category and became too dominant? Well, he became a team director. Yeah. You know, he, he delegated really well and he was he, he pulled all the strings he was a puppet master he, he had control but we're now getting to a place where Bayliss he doesn't even pretend to coach I mean he does some throwdowns he hits balls in the air he lets the specialists get on with the coaching um, perhaps we need someone who can perhaps we need someone to get inside James Vince's head and say you've got the game but you, you need to improve your the, the mental there's things like that Eileen Drury yeah exactly yeah that's the way first <laughs> test match I'm going to put you on the spot just for the hell of it I haven't prep this at all first test match assuming everyone's fit um, and they've played three or four games and no one's pulled up any trees but no one's got seven noughts in a row uh, Alistair Cook yes James Vince uh, no Mark Stoneman yes that'll do yeah Cook is, look Cook has been pointed out by people who know more about batsmen than I do is a rhythm batsman he didn't have any in New Zealand let's see how he goes after a few games with Essex if he fails this summer I think that's it and he may decide if he fails in the first three tests of summer to go. I, I, I sense that. Personally. But we've got to give him that chance. It's his last chance to prove that he is a rhythm batsman. You, that's important. You and me were both at Melbourne uh, and he batted as beautifully as he's ever batted in his life. 
Yeah. One one afternoon on a slow, stodgy track. Three test matches ago. Pre- precisely. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, yeah, once you get to past 20 these days, you get to 200, which is quite a skill. But it's, <laughs> increasingly, skill. <laughs> it's increasingly rare. So, and Stoneman is, too, is kind of just on the brink and you don't want to get rid of him just yet. Vince, if, if you had two prolific opening batsmen who weren't in the side, it'd be an interesting debate to have. But at the moment, Absolutely. it's not even a, exactly. it's not a, not a no. conversation yeah. that we had. Just to throw this out there as a little bit of TNT, um, there was someone, a former England coach, who was doing a lot of work on the shop floor out in the Caribbean who seemed to be enjoying his coaching again. Potentially Andy Flower, caretaker coach at the end of the summer when Bayless walks away? He was, he was doing some commentary with Dan Norcross for the North-South and one of his young batsmen got to 70-odd and ballsed it up and apparently he went absolutely ballistic. Stormed into the dressing room, was waiting for him to come back and then tore a strip off him or two. A couple of days later he got 100. So he's certainly still invested, <laughs> certainly still invested emotionally in it. He certainly still, still sees it as a project at work there. Talk about the magazine, talked about so it's stuff that tallies in with ball tampering with England, but there's there's more to cricket though, there's more to life than all of those things. For one, there's Felix White. Uh, who's he got on the back page this week or this month? He's got uh, John Altman. John Altman is a legendary saxophonist uh, who has played, find him? who has played, yeah. Uh, he's played with Bob Marley, um, Jimi Hendrix, played with Hendrix, Eric Clapton. He's played cricket Clapton. with Eric Clapton yeah. as well. He was, he was a Bunbury's uh, stalwart. Um, who ended up uh, holidaying in the Caribbean at the same time as Australia cricket team were touring there and became their kind of unofficial so- social secretary. Two, 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 two great quotes. One, oh yeah, Everton Weeks is a massive jazz fan. <laughs> <laughs> um, and two, oh, I introduced Damien Martin to Sean Penn. So, so it's that kind of style, very Felix-style article, very nice. Brilliant. Um, um, we've got Dan Norcross talking about 1985, his attempts to try and find sex and love through cricket and girls. Um, so, we so have a beautiful piece from Simon Wilde about Ranji. Of course, he's, he wrote the biography of Ranji as well. Um, I interviewed Bob Willis. Yeah, um, glorious hour on a Monday morning. That was great fun. Fittingly, um, we've neglected to talk about the World Cup qualifiers. Um, thankfully, we've got Tim Wigmore to drag us up. Do you not see it's on after print? Oh. It's fine. You can worry about that next year. <laughs> Lastly. You know, a great has walked away from the game. We touched on him earlier. KP Sankara has written about KP having spent time with him in the dressing room here at Surrey. Um, a few nuggets from the great man on the the other great it, man. I, I guess he. The point he made is that um, you've only got to look at England's one-day team now to see that the attitude and uh, the audacity that Peterson brought to the England team is still being felt today. And I think that's probably a decent legacy uh, for the old the old fella. I'd go with that. Kevin Peterson wouldn't like to say so himself, though, would he? No, no, God, no. no. I think he only retired 17 times on Twitter in, in, in a week, didn't he? And then bring back KP, of course, after England were 20-odd for, for nine. So there you go. The boy is alive and well out there. Well, perfect time to bring things to a close. Lawrence, firstly, thank you so much for yeah, joining cheers, us. Lawrence. Thank Brilliant. you for having me. Um, I look forward to you drowning um, waist deep, maybe even neck deep, in tweets asking you about Sachin. Yeah, why didn't you put Sachin on the cover? I've got them all prepared already, cut and paste, as ever. Have <laughs> you got a word file? Where oh, yes, just, they're all there. They're all there. Brilliant. Uh, Phil and Joe, thank you so much. Look forward to reading the next issue of the magazine, which is going to be out on uh, Thursday. Thursday. Is that the, the, the 10th? 12th? 11th? 
Next week. Next Thursday. Yeah, we'll just just keep looking in your local news agents. Next and, uh, Thursday. And such places. Maybe even the dark web as well. The yeah, 12th. It's, it's <laughs> a masterpiece. The 12th. The 12th of April. It's a dark know. and sombre masterpiece. <laughs> For the princely sum of... Ah, oh, four and a bit quid. Four ninety five. Four ninety. So, I mean, that's just that's that's less than a round. And of course, by the time you'll be listening to this, the almanac is out as well. Bit pricier though, isn't it? Bit so pricier, bit bigger. Bit ten. Bit wisdom. bigger, and not as many mistakes. And you get Lawrence three times in Wisdom Cricket Monthly. <laughs> so if you're weighing up which one you want to buy. <laughs> so yeah, we'll leave you with that. Don't buy the Wisdom Almanac. Buy Wisdom Cricket Monthly. From all of us here, thank you and goodbye. Podcast Network.